I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. very, very foreign to Arab culture to talk about personal things publicly. Twelve years before that, I was under the bombs of Beirut. I didn't go to therapy. I think I should. This is El Empire. Stories of exceptional Arabs around the world and their journey to the top. Hey, I'm Hiba Fisher. And I'm Dana Balut. And today on El Empire. What would be the first two lines of your obituary? What would you like them to be? <laughs> um, I think I'd actually kind of want like one of the one of like the really bad headlines. You know what I mean? Like something about me being a devil worshiper out to corrupt the youth and spread sin and homosexuality and incite um, incite revolutionary actions against government. Um, and all these things have been said, right, as though they were necessarily insults. And I think I'd actually really like that to be on my tombstone. <laughs> okay. This is Hamid Sinno. Hamid Khalil Sinno. So I am a singer-songwriter and um, LGBT rights activist. Hamid is the lead singer-songwriter for Mashur Leila. If you haven't heard of them, get out from under the rock. The band is often described as an indie Lebanese rock band. To me, honestly, they encompass so many genres. But anyway, I met Hamid for this interview in New York at our friend Dina's apartment. And I've known Hamid for about 15 years now. We went to high school together. But... At the time that we were meeting, I hadn't seen him in about a year, so it was really nice to see his face. And in those years that I've known him, a lot has happened. There are big things, small things, personal things, but then there's this big fact that Hamid and his bandmates, Haig, Carl, and Firas, became famous. They've recorded several albums, sold out concerts around the world, and of course, made international headlines. And at the time that we met in New York, they were making even more headlines after their concert in Lebanon was canceled and the band was accused of blasphemy. Death threats were pouring in and they were being bullied and harassed. It wasn't an ideal moment, but I'm grateful for Hamid for taking the time to do this with us. Also, as a disclaimer, this episode acknowledges the existence of sex and sexuality. Here we go.
let's do a test test. Get closer to you. Okay. What'd you have for breakfast? I had, I actually do this thing every morning where I make a loaf of bread out of almond flour and then make a grilled cheese sandwich out of that. You make the bread yourself? Yeah, it takes a few minutes. And you put it in the footin' and everything? I do it in the microwave because I'm lazy. That's kind of genius. I want to go all the way back and uh, start with your childhood. Where did you grow up? Uh, Beirut, born and raised. And what would you say Hamid under 10 years old was like? I was very solitary. And my mother tells me that I was generally a very sort of like easily contented child. I'd just like keep to myself and draw and sing. And apparently I was happy, which is remarkable considering. Why is it remarkable? Uh, I think like the moment puberty kicked in, I just got very, I became much more prone to like really intense bouts of depression, which kind of like marked me throughout high school and college and is a like constant struggle. Who were your favorite artists back then? I was really big on the Spice Girls, like like every good gay child. Um, I loved Michael Jackson so much. Um, like the first, the first sort of album that I ever bought, um, sort of of my own accord, was uh, Michael Jackson's History album, which was a double cassette with a giant sort of statue of himself as the cover. So it was very impressive. Yeah, I guess that's who I was listening to. I think Tina Turner. Um, we were in, so I'm half Jordanian, and we were in my grandmother's house in Amman, and there was a Tina Turner concert that my parents were watching on television in Jordan. And my father said that Tina Turner was very sexy, and I didn't know what that word meant. Um, so I asked him what it meant, and of course he, you know, probably explained it in a way that I that I you know, didn't understand either. But um, I just retained that Tina Turner was sexy, and that sexy was something good, and so I wanted to be like Tina Turner. We didn't come from a musical house in the sense where we were never sort of encouraged to learn instruments or or forced to, um, or anything like that. But there was always so much music around my house. My dad was on the jazz committee for the Baalbek festivals. So there was, you know, jazz all the time. So, you know, one of my like earliest memories is walking in on my parents, dancing on our balcony, listening to a Barry White vinyl. So there was always so much music that I, I don't know, it just seemed natural. What are your first memories of singing? Uh, first memories of singing. My mother bought me a little cassette recorder when I was a kid. Um, so I'd like steal my mother's mixed cassettes and then try to record songs over them. And my parents did encourage me. They also, I guess around puberty, tried to shut me up a lot. <laughs> my voice was doing strange things. But What was your relationship like with your parents? Um, complicated. Uh, my father and I had a very, very tense relationship. Uh, you know, sort of well into my 20s, we only kind of started to mend things like the year before he died. Um, he he was a very complicated man. He was a very tortured man. Um, 
so our relationship was not was not pleasant and I wasn't exactly an easy an easy teenager I was um you know like I said prone to bouts of depression and melodrama and um I just got in trouble so often um you know he was a very stressed um easily angered person so we didn't get along very well um my mother my mother is the exact opposite she's a complete rock star and very supportive and always has been and i think you know sort of seeing her deal with my father when we were growing up um sort of forged this kind of solidarity between her and myself and my siblings um that that is still sort of very much there where we you know see our mother as like a, a comrade not a parent if you look back at your childhood is there one particular memory that kind of always comes back to you yeah but like it's not a it's not a happy memory to be honest um i guess whenever i like think about my childhood the first things i remember are either like fights with my father or uh getting bullied at school so i guess whenever i like remember anything it's either sort of you know being like people carrying me and like charging towards a tree or um people cornering me and um sort of slapping me around putting gum in my hair because i had an afro um so then i ended up with like a bunch of bald patches for a while because i had to like cut the gum out which is actually kind of funny in hindsight. Um, I also like distinctly remember people making fun of me singing, which is um, for some reason kind of cathartic in hindsight. And it just feels cathartic again to like, you know, 15 years later, make a career out of being a gay musician is, is nice. I guess. The haters. <laughs> yeah, I guess. The haters now too, I suppose, but that's another story. What What was the ammunition that a lot of these bullies would use against you? That I, well, I mean, what's weird is I guess all those people knew I was gay before I did, um, which is so strange. Like it's not, it's not exclusively that I was denying it to myself. I also just didn't know. Um, and I guess people could see it and I don't know what that means because generally when people say they think you're gay, it tends to be about your gender performance, not about your actual, you know, sexual practice, obviously, especially when you're a teenager, it's not like you're having sex in public. So there was a lot of that. There was that I was really good at science and that my English was better than theirs. Um, my Arabic was terrible. That was always something that they'd make fun of me about, um, that was it. I mean, it doesn't take kids much, right? Kids are very creative. You could say something like, I bought a new book and that sentence will be used against you for the, you know, for the next two years just because someone decided that it's enough. I have to say that I also remember you being bullied in school. Yeah, it, I mean, again, we, I was still very much the choir kid who was loud and had good English and Sang in hallways. Yeah, very much. <laughs> a lot. I mean, you clearly had such a rough, rough uh, experience in school. Like, wh how did you just, how did you persevere? Like, where were your 
Where were your safe havens? Um, I guess it changed over time. When I was younger, it was always books. Um, you know, when I say I was a troublemaker, I mean, like, I used to skip class and answer teachers back and be very rude and curse and loud and whatever and, you know, pull pranks on, on teachers and whatever the hell it was. But I would skip school and go read, right? I would read stuff that wasn't part of our, like, high school curriculum. I'd read stuff for fun and read philosophy because I guess I needed to find justification for believing that everyone was wrong, um, which, you know, a lot of books offered. I, it was my favorite form of escapism until I discovered alcohol. But um, but I guess that kind of kept me going. I also did have, like, a, a solid group of really close girlfriends um, from my first school, and we're still family, right, like, now. And then in college, in college it was music. It was always music, actually. Even even when I was a kid, like, you know, I'd get bullied, but then I'd go home and listen to, like, Pearl Jam and Nirvana and grunge and stuff that was about brooding and being outside and that felt like it was for people like me, and I found community through that. Okay, so let's get to that. Let's get to the, your college days and how this entire journey began. So if you were to place a time in a and the location to how Mastralela was born, what would it be? Um, there's a building at the American University of Beirut called West Hall that had a music room in the basement. Um, I was in my first year at design school, and a few people from the architecture grade above us um, posted a flyer saying they wanted to start a music workshop for people in the architecture and design department um and i ended up in that room with like 15 other people who were sort of just jamming and the only sort of criteria i guess for whatever we produced were that um it would have to be completely original we wouldn't do covers and it would have to be in arabic um and that's how it started the, that same sort of workshop um, eventually filtered down to seven musicians and and we gave ourselves a name and we started a college band and for some reason that college band took off and before we even like left college we were famous right arguably I mean famous at that point <laughs> meant like people who weren't your friends knowing what your music was right um, but it was, it was completely surreal. I mean, to, to think that, that this started as a college band and at this point at 31 is still like, still my career. What's the relationship like between you and your bandmates? Um, it's complicated, right? Um, at this point, you know, the band has been happening for 10 years. So the, the stuff that we've been through is crazy and it's not the kind of stuff that any relationship would endure very easily. So I will say that we have very complicated relationships, but at the same time, we're always in the trenches sort of together. Um, and that matters. And, you know, it's sort of like the way it is with family where you understand that there's something bigger than you and bigger than the other person and that you're both working within that and trying to save that. Um, but you don't always like each other. Um, and that's 
sometimes beautiful and sometimes really annoying, but we're family. And when you started Mishra Leila, was there a, a mission and an identity back then? Like, did you feel like you had a fully formed kind of identity around the band? Yeah. I mean, look, we were in art school, right? Which means that we were the most pretentious people you could possibly imagine. And the reason we wanted to make music in Arabic was that, you know, I mean, you and I never listened to any Arabic music in high school. And, and there is a reason for that. One of them is that, you know, the kind of um, high schools that we went to meant that we belonged to, I guess, certain classes. And that affected the kind of um, the kind of culture that we had access to. Lebanon is very much a post-colonial country where, you know, the, the elites of the country are, quote unquote, westernized, right? But also, you know, if you turn on the radio, there's... Even now, if you turn on the radio, there's very little in Arabic popular culture that um, deals with anything. It's so vacuous and, and redundant and, and basic. And I guess we, we wanted to like fill that gap, right? To try and make music that we thought could reflect um, people like us and what we were going through and what, um, what we were thinking about. Um, I guess we're also like naive enough to think that music could change things, right? That it could make like the world a better place. What in particular did you want your music to change? I'm a big proponent even now of representation. I think representation really matters. I know that, you know, for example, when I was trying to wrap my head around my sexuality, it made me, it made me feel like I was alone, right? That I was a monster because of it. And the sign of a monster is difference. And the sign of difference is that no one else around you is like that. Right. So representation, when I was starting to come out was so important. It, even, even in the dumbest places like Will and Grace, right. But also in Oscar Wilde and David Bowie and Kurt Cobain wearing a dress and, um, Rabbi Alameddin, especially the author, um, those things meant so much to me. They meant that I wasn't alone and that made it a lot easier to sort of accept these things about myself. Um, I think when it comes to like political convictions, you know, you and I come from a country where sectarianism rules everything, elitism rules everything. It's a, it's a hyper neoliberal, corrupt government and society. And, you know, when you see that that's actually how the country is working, it becomes very easy to think that you're the only person who doesn't agree with those politics because that, again, is the way the country is operating. Um, and I think it matters to, like, to put that in, in music and other art forms. It, it allows people sort of the cultural artifacts with, with which they can build community, and it's that community that can actually change things. You know, there's a reason why the first thing you do when you when a country gains independence, the first thing they do is they make a flag and they, you know, write a national anthem. And the reason for that is that you need, you need art to collectivize around. You create these sort of signs, these symbols of this is a community. I want to talk about the, uh, I guess, coming out with your sexuality publicly. 
Like when the fir- band first started, and I might I may have gotten this wrong. When the band first started, I don't remember that being something that you guys would talk about openly. Like, what was there a decision process that happened? Uh, when like at what point do you remember deciding? You know what? This is something I actually want to talk about in public. So I had come out two years before we started the band, and then the band happened. They knew I was gay. Um, and it's not that there was never like a like a Frank Ocean moment, right? Of like coming out and having the statement or anything. It was just always there. Beirut's really small. People knew who I was. It's just no one ever said anything in the press, even though the second or third concert that we played had Shemil Yasmin in it, which is a love song to a man. Yeah. Which is a love song about the first guy I fell in love with. And I remember the first demo we recorded, even that we sent for that radio competition, had Shemil Yasmin on it. But it was always there. It's just the press didn't say anything about it until we got really big. And I think a big part of that is that Arab press didn't want to deal with it. Um, and they still kind of don't. The only Arab press that ever brings up my sexuality is Arab press that's trying to call the band Satanists. And how did the band take it? Was there a discussion internally with you guys about like how you would talk about your sexuality? Because in many ways you started to become labeled as the first openly gay Muslim band of the Middle East. Yeah, so I mean, we did we did have a discussion about it because again, even then that first video that that had any mention of my sexuality, that's when the death threat started, right? And this is really like 2011, maybe 2012. Um, so there there did have to be a discussion. Um, because it affects everyone. Um, but we all sort of agreed that, you know, they kind of had my back. I'm sure it would have been a lot easier for them if I lied and, and did things easily. But um, they respected that I didn't want to. And honestly, I don't think any of us imagined that things would get as bad as they did over the years. Um, to be completely honest... I can't say for a fact that if I knew everything I know now about the price I'd have to pay for for just being honest about my sexuality, that I would still do it, right? I'd like to believe that I would. And it's easy to say that when you're already in that position, right? Where, you know, it's just a matter of fact that I have to deal with death threats and and intimidation and whatever the hell it is all the time. I've been accused of like witchcraft and Satanism. I can't honestly say that I would necessarily do it again. Um, And it's made me much more sympathetic to people that just don't want to come out, either in the public eye or in their personal lives. It's it's horrible. It's it's not fair. Um, And it's stupid that this is 2019 and this is actually still the way things are. How do you how do you deal with those death threats? They must be so terrifying. Um, I don't, I, there's nothing I can do about it, right? They are what they are. We, 
I'd like to believe that it's just talk. I'm 100% certain that at some point it won't just be talk. And then when that happens, we'll see what happens. But, um, you know, we ask for a lot of security at our shows. We um, ignore a lot of things over the last, like, week the scale of things has been so bad that we've actually had to like report to the police in Lebanon, but I don't really have faith in our security apparatus. I'm, I'm not sure they're going to do anything about it. Can you talk to me about the first song Mashra Leila ever wrote? Who wrote it? How did you write it? So the first album in general, actually, and the very first song we wrote was... Um, you know, we hadn't, we had just sort of met each other as musicians and we were very young musicians and we weren't thinking as songwriters, we were thinking as musicians. And there's a very big distinction there where like as a songwriter, you put the song first, as a musician, you put your own performance first. So what we would do was sort of go around in a circle where we'd have one like sort of central theme, right? Like a, a line and we'd go around in a circle, each playing that line with our instrument and making variations of it. And it's almost like a vulgar display of musical virtuosity, right? We're like, oh, look how well I can play this and look at all these like passing notes that I can shove in and mess around with the timing. And, you know, um, I think the very first song we wrote was um, was a song called Dara'sat Layla. And Andre, our former guitarist, came up with... Um, the chords for that I think I can't remember if it was him or Firas but they came up with the chords for that and we you know would just keep playing it and looping it and I had to write the lyrics so I um, took from this surrealist writing exercise that I had literally just learned about in art history class the day before um, where you know write a sentence and then fold the paper and then just keep writing whatever comes to mind eventually try to like rationalize it so I did that and wrote nonsense and then people started reading all sorts of things into it which is hilarious um, but you know the song essentially means nothing um, really that's it Leila it was a song that was intended to mean nothing and the hilarious part is that people will read so much into any text just the insistence on, on meaning and significance is Amazing. How did, like, our Arabic was not strong. Mm -hmm. Where did you get such Arabic fluency and eloquency? That's something I've always wondered about. I mean, yeah, in high school, we never spoke Arabic, right? I also didn't do a lot of Arabic at home. My mom was an English professor and she grew up in, so even though she's Jordanian, she grew up between Rome and Germany and Morocco. So her Arabic was never that great. And it was just, 
English has always been the language I think in. It still is. It's the language that I start writing in and then eventually translate back to Arabic. And that's how I learned Arabic is actually through writing songs and translating. I spend all my time when I'm writing, I spend all my time with like a bunch of tabs open on my laptop. One of them is like almaani.com. One of them is Google Translate. I mean, Arabic is such a beautiful, rich language that is so loaded that any word can mean a billion things. And it's just, it makes it easy almost to be poetic, I think. At what point did you realize like, wow, I think we have something here? Um, I think when we won... We won a radio competition in the first year that we started, um, and we were supposed to get a record deal out of it. Um, but the label went bankrupt, and we never actually recorded that album with them. But at the time, I mean, the idea of having a record deal, I mean, this was 2008, 2009, and we hadn't really wised up to the, the changes in the music industry. At the time, the idea of getting a record deal was synonymous with making it. Right. Yeah. If you if you could get signed, if someone would record you, that's it. You're gonna make it. Um, so we started taking things more seriously. We kept making music together. We recorded our first album, and we graduated from college. And the band had started, you know, getting requests to play in Jordan and Egypt um, and Syria, which we never did because of the war. And in April, I think 2012, we all. So we weren't making any money off of the band, right? But we decided that the only way to to try to do this properly would be to quit our jobs anyway and see what happens. And like, like we would give the band full time for a year. And if that were to work out, then we would keep doing it. And it did work out. We started playing a lot more. We wrote more. We re- recorded an album. Um... And none of us looked back, I guess. When did you realize that you had, like, kind of became famous? Um, okay, so this is weird, but I think the first time someone yelled at me at a bar in Beirut and what accused me of, they, they were accusing me of, like, bastardizing the Arabic language and telling me that I shouldn't be making music. And this guy was a complete stranger. And I remember being so angry and so upset, but then three hours later registering that some stranger knew who I was and what my music was and that that was very weird and cared enough to yell at you I suppose yeah for you know all the wrong reasons but it was still there um and it's one of those things that still kind of like catches me by surprise sometimes it's weird I've had a very rough week for example because of uh, polemics surrounding the band in Lebanon and I was at Whole Foods trying to like deal with how sad I was by buying like keto keto friendly ice cream which is to say that it <laughs> it didn't have real sugar in it um, so I go into Whole Foods to buy some ice cream and I get stopped by these two really 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 sweet women um, who just said the nicest things to me about the band and it just you know, when these things happen, it really helps you put things in perspective. It really does help, like, balance out, I guess, the external feedback loop. You know, the gratification and the validation that you get from people who actually like the band does sometimes actually help counter the amount of hate that the band gets as well. I want to go back on the blasphemy thing.
live in a context where, I mean, again, even saying free speech or saying women's equality、yeah. is considered radical. And this isn't to say that it's just the Arab world,、yeah. right? This region is just as bad with that, right?、Yeah. And has clearly, you know, the experiment of the civil rights movement here and what that brought us to clearly kind of failed. On a lot of levels, because we're still dealing with the KKK and with、um, income inequality and with rape culture. So clearly, this region didn't get it right either. But if we're going to be honest, you can say something here, right? But、um, you can't say anything in the Arab world without that being treated like blasphemy or. Um, or without you being seen as a political radical in that threatening national safety, literally by writing a song saying women should have rights, right? Or we should have civil marriage, or whatever it is. Like these things aren't actually radical, they're basic. I want to talk about your performance and your arts, like your actual voice.、Um, so, First of all, did you ever take any kind of like voice lessons or anything like that? No, but I did over the years sort of like train myself and, and you know, do stupid online tutorials and, and stuff like that. So I, I don't know if I can say I'm untrained in that sense. I, I'm maybe self trained is the right word. It's kind of amazing. Thanks. <laughs> and before you go on stage, I've seen you in concert a couple times and there's like, A presence as soon as you step on to, to the platform, the stage, wherever you are. And I wonder how you prepare for a concert, both in your performance and then also in your voice itself. Because in many ways, your voice is not just like a voice, it's a, an instrument. It's like it's a musical instrument. I, I warm up before shows, so I kind of know how to warm up enough to protect my voice, I guess. Um, which I had to figure out because I, at some point, just kept getting laryngitis before shows. And it's because I wasn't taking care of my voice. And I don't think there's anything that you can do about preparing yourself for the performance part of things. I mean, literally just being a body on stage、um, under scrutiny by too many people.、Um, it's just. You know, the stage, is, the stage is a very weird, weird place to be, right? I'm very comfortable being on stage singing to 10,000 people. I'm much less comfortable being on stage singing to 300 people. And I will never in my life be able to stand up at a dinner table, at a dinner party, and start singing. And, and the reason I'm saying those three things are separate is that, you know, you and I are in this room right now talking, right? There's a certain. Volume that we understand that we should be speaking at. If I get too loud, that's construed as aggression or、um, arrogance, even, right? When you're on stage, it's the other way around. You're literally given physical elevation above an audience, right? There's this like, you're a meter and a half higher up than everyone else, and you're given amplification so that you're loud enough that every single person in the room can hear you and they can hear you louder than they can hear each other. So, it's essentially not a social function. So, when you get up on stage, you're not, you know, I'm not being, I'm not there to be hammered, right? Like, 
the person who I am with my friends or my family or my boyfriends or whatever it is. You're there to be something that happens on stage. And it's amazing because you get to experience two hours of not being yourself. Um, and it's incredible. And obviously the smaller an audience is, the more intimate it is, the more the, the closer it is to an actual social interaction. And that's why it gets really frightening because then they're, you know, people's judgments or people's reactions to what you're doing become closer to your actual person than to this weird persona that happens on stage. I still get so much performance anxiety and stage anxiety and I freak out for the entire day before a show and it just gets worse throughout the day until I'm on stage. And for a few years, I tried to like deal with that by drinking um, before getting on stage and I made a mess of myself repeatedly. I don't understand how I still have a career. Um, no, seriously, the first time we played in D.C., I literally went on a 45-minute monologue yelling at the entire audience for um, letting Bernie lose the primaries. <laughs> um, <laughs> seriously, it's like no one's there for that. Um, but, you know, when I got sober, I guess I learned that that anxiety just means that you really care about what you're doing and that anxiety is actually just a lot of energy that you can then channel into a billion directions and it's productive in that sense. It's, it's useful. Um, it's really easy to take all that anxiety and then at some moment on stage, turn that into you jumping around a lot and being very energetic and dancing and, and, you know, just doing all those things that can make music contagious to an audience that's watching a live performance. What about like uh, what you wear? I guess the rules of thumb are so I sweat a lot like most Arabs um so I wear a lot of black because it hides that I also am constantly struggling with my weight so again black makes it easier essentially it's anything that makes you feel good that makes you feel far enough removed from who you are socially that you can pretend to be someone else and someone who's better than yourself for an hour and a half anything that helps you like you know, get into the role with method acting. Um, one way of sort of staying in character is also to just stay in costume. Um, and I, I, I feel like getting on stage is like that. You, you don't want to feel like yourself. You don't want to wear what you're wearing to brunch. You want to wear something outrageous and unsocial and unfathomable. Like I, I, there's nothing that I wear on stage that I could possibly wear on the subway. Um, and that's the point, sort of. Yeah. And sexy like Tina Turner. And sexy like Tina Turner, definitely. <laughs> I know you mentioned struggling with your weight. It's something I've struggled with as well. I know we've run into each other at the gym trying to change that. And I wonder, like, being in the public eye, someone scrutinizing my body would terrify me and probably break me into a million pieces. How do you do it? Um... So look, it's not just being in the public. I, people actually have the nerve. I mean, again, especially the Lebanese, you know oh, what yeah. we're like. We we tell each other That's about, our, yeah, yeah, yeah. the first thing we say That's to each other when we see each other is, oh my God, you gained weight or you lost weight or whatever. And sometimes it's actually really well intended. Um, and I'm not going to say I'm above it. I do it all the time. We're yeah. like, the, but I only do it when I mean it, where if I see someone and they look amazing, I think it's important to tell them. Yeah. That said, I... You know, the only time I, I mean, the, the worst that my struggle ever got with that was in college. 
I did pick up a really, really, really bad eating disorder, and I think no one talks about um, about men with eating disorders, um, which is horrible, and it's disproportionately common in the gay male community um, because of these absurd body expectations that we have. I got a really, really, really bad eating disorder in college. I ended up in a hospital. Um, and the only reason that happened wasn't because I was trying to react to people telling me anything about my body. It was because I was trying to look good enough for a man who broke my heart, right? And, and sometimes just obsessing about your body becomes a way to feel like you're in control of things. Um, that's a, a toxic part of eating disorders that people don't really talk about is that it actually makes you feel like you're in control. And that can be so dangerous. And that's why it's so dangerous, is that everything always feels out of control, especially when you're depressed. And eating disorders are just this thing to latch onto sometimes. It makes it really hard to stop. Yeah. Are you good now? I am uh, good now. I don't have, like, the eating problems that I used to have. I want to talk about next steps. What is next for you? Um, so I'm in New York right now. I moved here three months ago, and I am writing. I'm working on some solo stuff. Um, we're touring around the U.S. in September. And what's the craziest thing a fan has ever asked you to do? It was not necessarily crazy. It was actually just kind of offensive. Someone asked me, like, I was signing autographs um, in Beirut this one time. And someone asked me to sit on her face. <laughs> and, and um like is that I said in English. Oh, okay. Um and I was so offended. Mr. Leila is going on a North American tour beginning this September 2019, so if you're in the U.S. or Canada, be sure to check out those tour dates. Selected music today from Mr. Leila. You can listen to the band and all their albums on Spotify. This episode was produced by Dana Balut and myself, Hiba Fisher, with editorial support by Lena Mohammed and Alex Atak. Sound design by Mohammed Khezat and fact-checking by Zena Duweder. Our original sting was composed by Ramzi Bashur, and El Empire is produced by Kerning Cultures. A huge thank you, of course, to Hamid Zanou for giving us his time for this interview. All of our guests are sons and daughters, fathers and brothers, and they're building their empires. They're extremely busy people, and so it really means a lot to us that they trusted us with their time. Thank you, Hamid. And next week on the Empire. And so numbers can help me to do that. So I literally just start researching. And then what I very often do is I will get those numbers and do them into a very classic chart type. And I will just look through the different chart types. I'll take that same data set and look at it as a bar chart, a pie chart, a line chart. Um, and I'll see which of those feels like it communicates the data the best. And then I think about the subject that I'm talking about here. That's in one week. Lastly, if you're liking El Empire, please subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode. Also, leave a rating and review on whatever podcast app you're listening to us from. 
It really helps boost our rankings so that other listeners can find out about us in the podcast libraries. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.